The new season means new seasonal recipes, and now it's easier than ever to prepare ones you'll love. With fresh ingredients delivered to your door, HelloFresh brings the farmer's market to you. Get 16 free meals plus three gifts with code SISTERS16 at HelloFresh.com SISTERS16 or look for the link in our show notes. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Wine Banks, Barb McQuaid, Kimberly Atkins Store, and me, Joyce Vance. Did you know we have a new pale blue woman's tea in the Hashtag Sisters in Law merchandise store? I just got mine and I love it. So go to Politico. So aren't, aren't they great? I mean, they they're just, beautiful. They're great. So Fabulous. Nicely. Um, I think this is my favorite bit of merch yet. I wasn't sure I, I was going to like this color and I'm crazy about it. Go to politicon.com slash merch and get yours now. They're going fast. You can tell we're all probably going to be repeat customers of our own merchandise, but it's a great shirt. Today, we'll be discussing a federal judge's order dismissing a DOJ indictment of a Texas man in connection with January 6th. Also, Bill Barr's attempted reputation resurrection and book selling tour. And the new attacks on abortion rights, including a proposed law by a Missouri legislator aimed at preventing women from going out of state for an abortion. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. You know, before we dig into our topics for the week, we usually engage in a little bit of chit-chat. And we try to do something that's lighthearted and and fun because we don't want to be all about the serious horror of the news that we sometimes face in the news cycles that we've lived through for the last five years. But I am finding it exceptionally difficult to be lighthearted this week with everything that's going on in in Ukraine. I'm just not feeling the lighthearted mood. And I think we all view current events through the lens of our own personal history For me, as somebody who was raised to think that I was a Russian Jew because Ukraine was part of Russia and increasingly has been focused that my family is actually Ukrainian Jewish and that we are from parts of Ukraine that are currently under attack, it's been just sort of difficult to process all of that. I think people always say that history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. This feels very much like a sort of a rhyming time in history, and I'm finding it a little bit hard to process and be lighthearted. But I am really appreciative of something that I've noticed lately, which has been the small kindnesses that people seem inclined to bestow on on each other. Even something as simple as today, I had to run out to, to run an errand. The parking lot was completely full. There was one space. I approached it at the same time as another car. You know, normally he would have whipped his little sports car into that space, but instead he sort of smiled and, and waved at me and saved me from driving around and wasting time. And I was deeply appreciative of that very small kindness. How about y'all? Yeah, something similar happened to me. Um, yesterday, I had a couple packages to take to uh, a shipping store. Um, and they were big, but pretty light. And I thought, you know, I need some exercise. I'll just walk there. It's maybe a 15-minute walk. And along the way, not only were people um, asking me if I needed help, one of my neighbors, you know, came outside her house and said, are you going to the package store? Do you need do you need a ride? And I just thought that was really sweet. I, um, you know, I said no, but I just thought, you know, it's very kind that I have neighbors that would see me think that I need some help and come out and offer it. And I was fine, but I really appreciated that. I think that I'm more touched by the kindnesses that people are expressing on Twitter to the people of Ukraine and the kindnesses we're Mm. seeing in donations and the generosity of uh, everybody in trying to help. Uh, I I think that's really been important. And I I appreciate people tweeting to me or, you know, including me in a tweet about something that has to do with how we can help people in Ukraine. That's sort of has touched me, I would say. Yeah, same, Jill. You know, I've been struck by, you guys probably remember the old Mr. Rogers line, when something bad happens, look for the helpers, uh, because it can just be so overwhelming. I, I'm sure like uh, like me, you guys have been watching a lot of the images coming out of Ukraine, which has just been so devastating. Uh, I won't describe it. It's been so awful. But I have seen, you know, those moments of kindness. You've seen, like, did you see the guy who's like rescuing all the dogs? And there was yes. a place where um, 
you know, they were receiving children who are refugees and they had a whole bunch of little stuffed animals, you know, just very small stuffed animals. And it said, please take one. And I saw, you know, little kids holding them and hugging them and playing with them. And so those are such small kindnesses. You know, you can't solve these people's problems. They've lost their home and some have lost their lives and some have lost loved ones. But, you know, if you can just show a small kindness and help. And so uh, there's so many ways we can help from here through donations and other things. But wonderful to see people on the ground helping. And that gives me some hope for humanity. Yeah, it's a lovely reminder that everybody you meet is is fighting a battle, whether it's what people in Ukraine are going through or, or something else, something much smaller and less significant but meaningful to you personally. So it's great to remember that and remember to be kind. Early this week, U.S. District Court Judge Carl Nichols threw out the Justice Department's most serious charge against Garrett Miller, a January 6th defendant from Texas, a charge that carries a 20-year penalty. The crime was obstruction of Congress's certification of President Biden's 2020 election victory. Seven other federal judges have upheld that charge in the context of the events of January 6th. So, Barb, let's look at what are the facts of that case And what was Judge Nichols' rationale for his ruling? How does it compare with the other judges' decisions? Jill, this is one of those cases of the 770 or so defendants who was there at the Capitol on January 6th and physically pushed his way into the building, assaulting officers along the way. So he was charged in 12 counts with a number of different crimes, including threatening uh, a member of Congress uh, and a police officer after January 6th. So he's charged with a lot of things, but one of them in particular is this offense of um, obstructing an official proceeding under a particular federal statute. Um, So, you know, it's not enough that somebody does something bad or something wrong. You have to violate specific statutes. And so this one, he filed a motion to dismiss um, for three grounds, and the judge granted it on one basis, and that is that this particular statute only applies to the destruction of documents. It does not apply to generally disrupting a proceeding. So, you know, by showing up at the Capitol on January 6th and creating uh, chaos, the members of Congress fled. And so that proceeding, that vote certification had to halt. That's the theory of the government. Um I read it as a pretty tortured application of that particular statute. The statute just says anyone who otherwise obstructs an official proceeding, there's a prior section that talks about destroying documents and records and other kinds of things. And what the judge wrote is that, well, you have to look at them together and therefore otherwise obstructs has to relate to this destruction of documents. There are 10 other judges who have already seen this very charge and this very motion and have rejected this argument. So I think it's a a weak argument. I think it's a weak decision by this judge. But the reason it's significant is it affects not just this case, but now if you're the Justice Department, you have to think carefully about whether you want to file this charge again when you have choices of other particular statutes to use, knowing that this Judge Nichols is likely to rule similarly in any future case. And do, do they need to appeal this to the circuit court and perhaps all the way to the Supreme Court to get a ruling that one way or the other clarifies whether this is going to be a good charge. We've already had other defendants plead guilty to it uh, relating to the events of January 6th. No doubt there are defendants out there who are considering guilty pleas to this count. And now that we've seen this judge accept this uh, you know, fringe position, uh, are they likely to uh, refuse to plead guilty and to also try to reject it? Um, and to the extent that the Justice Department might be thinking about charging Trump or his inner circle, I think this is one of the charges they would look at, obstructing an official proceeding. It requires acting corruptly. But if, for example, they wanted to charge President Trump, not because of his efforts with the mob, but because of his efforts to pressure Mike Pence to stop the certification process, this is one of the charges I think they would look at. So clarity could be really important here. So, Kim, following up on what Barb was saying, could this particular decision impact the pending cases, including the indictment of Proud Boys leader Tario for conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding that was announced the day after Judge Nichols ruled in the Miller case, and the conviction the same day of another January 6th insurrectionist, Guy Reffitt, 
for the same crime, obstruction of an official proceeding? Um, The short answer is yes, it could, particularly if we do see uh, appeals in this case. They can come uh, either from the uh, Justice Department appealing this, which I would suspect, I mean, I want to hear from the prosecutors here what you think too. I suspect that they would do, because I would think that they would want a ruling from this fairly quickly um, from the D.C. Circuit, which I think would likely rule in their favor to try to keep moving forward with these charges. Uh, And or if one of the defendants who has been charged with this or who has um, already uh, pleaded guilty um, or have had their case dispensed with, it would uh, provide a grounds of appeal for them. Because now, even though it's just this one ruling, it's not precedential, meaning that it does, it doesn't, it's not binding on any future rulings. But having this out there, having the potential that this can go up to an appeal and potentially get knocked down, yes, I think it really could uh, impact the ability uh, of the Justice Department to, to move forward with this. And certainly the ability to use this, this comes with a 20-year uh, sentence. It's one of the most serious charges that these folks could face. And the ability to use that to try to get a plea deal is really important. And it certainly can affect that. I just want to add one thing to echo what what Barb says. I do. I agree that it's a very strained reading. This this language about documents actually came from the Enron trial. It's because uh, the the law was amended to make clear that if you were doing things, if all you did was shred some evidence (laughs) and you were still you could still be charged with obstruction of an official proceeding because you were just shredding that evidence. He essentially took that language and sort of made that a prerequisite for obstruction, which makes absolutely no sense. If you look at the history of the legislation, it makes absolutely no sense. So I think in the end, this case is a loser, but the problem is in the short term, it can, uh, in the words of Barb McQuaid, who I read a a great quote in the Washington Post story, uh, throws a monkey wrench in this whole, uh, in the ability of the DOJ to really um, try to secure plea agreements and push forward with these things. So I think it's a, maybe not a long-term problem, but certainly a short-term one. It certainly will cause delay. There's no question, and I agree with both of you, that it is a really strained reading. So Joyce, as our appellate expert, um, given the conflicting opinions uh, where the weight of authority is clearly with the other judges, but you have one opinion that says that this is a requirement that there be a document destroyed, um, what do you think is going to happen? Is this you know, the most serious of crimes being charged, will it be appealed? And what's the likely outcome on appeal? I think it's a given that DOJ will appeal. And here's a little procedural tidbit. If you're a U.S. attorney's office and you get an adverse ruling, like they've gotten in this case from the judge, you have to get permission from the Solicitor General of the United States before you can take an appeal. But you have the ability to file what what appellate lawyers call a prophylactic notice of appeal before you get that permission. That means you just file a placeholder notice so that there's something there within the time limits for filing an appeal once you get a decision from the Solicitor General. I think we'll see that notice filed imminently because the plain language of the law here, is, as y'all have, have discussed, it's pretty clear. And the legislative history makes clear that this isn't just about destroying or shredding documents. And when you think about what this statute is is meant, the conduct it's meant to criminalize, it's nonsensical to think that if you don't destroy documents, you can't violate the statute. So the judge here, you know, he, he obviously went and looked at cases about statutory construction and sort of used all the language judges use when they find that a statute means a certain thing. But, but it's kooky. It's a really kooky ruling. I don't usually feel strongly about the government's chances on appeal, but my prediction is that they will win on appeal here and that the Supreme Court will not hear this case, and it will be dead right there. But, you know, as Kim points out, the ruling has legs. Appeals take time. While this appeal is pending, it's more difficult for DOJ to get plea agreements out of defendants because no defense lawyer in their right mind is going to encourage their client to plead straight up while this issue is still unresolved. So, you know, I think the smart thing for DOJ here to do is the appeal gets docketed and the court will give it a certain period of time uh, and it'll be a good 
period of time out that it can file its brief in. If I was DOJ, I'd have my brief ready to go. And as soon as the appeal is docketed, I would file my brief to speed this appeal on its way and to uh, just make a, a note to the court of how seriously we take it. Joyce, can I interject on that? I especially like the way you say kooky. It's a, it's a very nice Southern uh, drawl on the kooky. I agree that with your kooky theory. You know what this reminds me of? When, you know, um, lawyers use this like tortured legal interpretation to suggest that this is the one and only correct answer under the law. And they're really just, you know, propping it up with all kinds of fig leaves to make it look like it's all logic. And it's really just, you know, they're just making it up. Um, have you ever seen that Abbott and Costello uh, routine where they say uh, seven times 13 equals 28? And, you know, by car- you carry the two minus 10 plus this, eight, 28, and they get it every time, you know, however they do it. And you look at it like, that is not right. I know that's not right. And yet somehow by, you know, uh, all the little mathematic uh, gymnastics, they can make it look right. I feel like that's exactly what this judge is doing here. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. And it's it's a little bit sad. He's a new judge. This isn't a ruling that's going to enhance his credibility in, in any way, shape, or form. I think he gets his hands smacked pretty quickly. So I, I got to add that your monkey wrench theory, Barb, is giving me a new pin to wear because I have a wrench. <laughs> so I'm going to have Yay! a new Jill's but pin. You, Thank you very much. Excellent. <laughs> do you have a monkey, though? You need a monkey pin to <laughs> oh, go with the wrench pin. <laughs> okay. I Well, isn't a monkey... I think it's... I guess I have to look up what a monkey wrench is as opposed to a wrench. I'm not really sure. But if not, I'm going to get a monkey pin for sure. Anyway, more seriously, following up on the Tario and Refit cases... I'm wondering, do you think DOJ is working its way up from those involved in entering the Capitol to those who were involved in giving directions from outside the building, like Tario, who did not enter the Capitol? He wasn't even in D.C. because of another crime he committed. He was forced out of D.C. And then they're going to use the next step, which is to go to the people who fomented the violence, including the former president. So are they building their way up? And are we seeing it in these indictments? Uh, Who wants to answer that? Well, I'll just say I don't think DOJ is ever results-oriented when it conducts an investigation. At least in my experience, you know, you don't decide that you're going to get somebody. You want to find the evidence. And if somebody's committed a crime, then you'll prosecute. So obviously the big unknown that hangs over everybody's head right now is, you know, is Merrick Garland going to go for it or isn't he? I think he continues when he speaks to give strong indication that he will go wherever the evidence leads. And the real risk here for Trump is that in cases like Tario or in the case involving the leader of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, that if those folks at the top cooperate, that perhaps gets prosecutors inside of that war room at the Willard, where you had people like Roger Stone or former General Mike Flynn, and perhaps one of those people decides to cooperate and gets you into the White House. I think it's just this constant trajectory of going up the chain. Yeah, you know, uh, Merrick Garland gave uh, an interview the other day to NPR where he said, you know, this is how we do our work. We start with the cases that are right in front of us, and then we dig deeper. We continue to get documents and social media and phone records. And we talk to people who now we have leverage over them. They may want to cooperate and we can build the bigger and more complex cases. So I do think so, Jill. And I think the Terrio case is kind of the first of of many more that are likely to come. Um, as Joyce says, they'll follow the evidence wherever it lies. I take Merrick Garland as word. I know there's been some frustration, including among my dear sisters, as to whether Merrick Garland is on the job and I, I have to believe the answer is yes, because I, I don't want to live in a world where we have a, a DOJ that would shrink from this responsibility. Barb, I can I optimism. ask you a question? I, I've, I've got a question. I've heard some people continue to criticize Merrick Garland because when he talks about the prosecutions he's doing, he says January 6th. Mm-hmm. And they've read that as meaning only people that were involved in overrunning the Capitol as opposed to the larger big lie. Do, do you think that criticism is fair or unfair? I think it's one way to read it because he does say the January 6th attack. But I think to fully investigate that, you don't just investigate what happened that day. You investigate all of the planning that went into it. That includes what the plot that we've seen with Donald Trump working with John Eastman and trying to pressure Mike Pence uh, that began even before the election with laying the groundwork about a rigged election and an election fraud. So I think 
uh, it can also be read broadly enough to include all of those other events. And I think Merrick Garland has also said that it's important to adhere to DOJ norms, not only during normal times, but also during extraordinary times, maybe especially during extraordinary times. And I think it is a way of adhering to that policy to neither confirm nor deny the existence of any particular investigation. So you know what, you guys, there was a time that I actually wanted to hear from now former Attorney General Bill Barr. Uh, it was a couple of years ago. Uh, it would have been good if it was under oath. Um, but he didn't do it then. But now here he is speaking. But of course, it's on a book tour. So I want to ask everyone their thoughts on the latest former Trump official to engage in a bid for redemption. But first, Barb, there was a bit of news that came out of um, Bill Barr's book tour. Um, We find out that he reportedly has already had informal conversations with the January 6th committee. And he said he's willing to uh, cooperate further in the probe. So Barb, what information do you think he could provide? Well, in particular, I think he can be very useful in um, in two pieces of evidence. One, there was no fraud in the 2020 presidential election. It was investigated and they concluded that there was no fraud. And so he made that public statement. And I think just explaining his basis for reaching that conclusion could be important. But even more importantly is proving Donald Trump's intent to defraud, which requires proof that he knew there was no fraud in the 2020 election. And so William Barr has described in vivid detail in his book, apparently from the media excerpts, that he told Donald Trump repeatedly that there was no fraud in the election. And that's why he stated it publicly. And they had some, you know, head to head meeting that got very heated in uh, the little dining room outside the Oval Office or Trump slammed his hand down on the table uh, and he offered to resign and, and Trump said accepted. So I think that is very important to helping build the case that Trump knew that there was no election fraud, not a scintilla of evidence. And that is what makes his efforts to stop the certification criminal. You know, it's not alone, but when you combine that with other evidence from all these other sources who told Trump that there was no fraud, I think that can be very powerful evidence. Now, I would like to have heard this from Mr. Barr back when Donald Trump was impeached for his role in the January 6th insurrection. He could have volunteered this to the impeachment managers rather than waiting to profit from it in his own book. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And so I will just share this one graph, uh, paragraph. I'm sorry, that's a uh, reporter so media, speak. such a media insider. <laughs> this one paragraph from the New York Times review of this book, because uh, as listeners, you may have realized by now, none of the four of us read it and we're not going to read it. But this is what you need to know. This is a pattern in Barr's book. He nitpicks his way to desired conclusions by carefully navigating a lawyerly path around finely drawn distinctions, all while lobbing bomblets at anyone he defines as an enemy. Makes him sound very Trumpy, Jill, you know. So even though he stands by this assessment that ended up costing him his job, right, that there was no election fraud, everything else about this bid for redemption just feels like another aggrieved former Trump official looking for absolution. What do, what do you think? I agree completely. I, like you, and I think all of us, will not be buying or reading this book. It is somebody who is trying to profit from having withheld important information at a time when it mattered. But I think there is a lot more than than what you've read from that paragraph. I think all you need to know is, first of all, the title of the book, One Damn Thing After Another. I mean, really? That's a serious book by the Attorney General of the United States? But not just that. If you read the headline of the New York Times Review, it reads, William P. Barr's memoir is part lawyerly defense, part culture war diatribe. In one damn thing after another, the former attorney general suggests that Republicans move past Donald Trump and his madcap rhetoric, but saves his harshest words for the former president's critics. And it's not just the New York Times review. I looked at a number of reviews, and many of them are even harsher. I think that I'll include in our show notes um, 
one from MSNBC um, and one from Verdict Justicia, which says Barr's book is the latest front in his charm offensive to sanitize his reputation. He's distancing himself from Trump now, but as AG, Barr empowered Trump and worked hard to get him reelected. The damage Barr did can't be minimized by a memoir. And I think what's important is let's look at what Barr did, not what he's saying now. He, you know, he was full of lies and deceptions at the time that he served. Um, and we know that his book, based on reviews I'm reading, is full of the same kinds of things. You know, we knew from the time of his audition memo that he was going to mislead the public. When he wrote the, the summary of the Mueller report, he was completely misleading the public by creating this no collusion, no obstruction summary, which is not what the Mueller report said. And I don't know what he's trying to accomplish by rehabilitating himself. Why does he want to rehabilitate himself? Does he want to go back to being attorney general again? What does he want out of this? Um, he severely hurt the Department of Justice that those of us who have worked there really loved. And he hurt due process. He hurt justice in general. And so I think he needs to be held accountable for that and that nobody should read his book. I know what Bill Barr wants. I know. Let me take a stab at it. He wants to sell books. It's all about yes. Bill Barr. History is written money. by the winners, Joyce. Absolutely. Don't you yeah. remember that? Yeah. And that brings me to my next point, Joyce. You know, I personally find it really repugnant that a former attorney general who aided, in my opinion, the former president in taking a sledgehammer to the rule of law could now profit from a memoir from that. And I know, I mean, that's why I'm not reading the book. I know you're not reading it either, Joyce. Tell us, tell us your thoughts. Yeah, you know, I haven't read the book and I won't, although I did listen to Barr's interview with Lester Holt. And it was just more of the same from Barr. From the outset, he was always the president's lawyer, which is not the attorney general's job. The attorney general is supposed to be the people's lawyer. And that was never who Bill Barr wanted to be. He was, in my judgment, unworthy of the office that he held from the moment that he wrote that 19-page uh, memo soliciting the job, you know, a, a memo that he made sure uh, would make its way into both the White House and the attorney general's office, the Justice Department, in which he pre-promised his belief that a president, a sitting president, could not be indicted for obstruction of justice. And he has always stuck to that sort of behavior. He, he sticks to a lot of lies in this interview with Lester Holt. And I don't use the word lie lightly here. I think it's really difficult and painful, this notion that an attorney general of the United States would tell bald-faced lies. But that's Bill Barr, and I think we have to say that. We have to point to that fact because everything he says and does is calculated. And I have a little bit of a different spin on his comments about fraud in, in the general election. You know, it, it's sort of the point has been made, well, he stopped short in this one area. He wouldn't say that there was fraud, even though he went along with Trump on everything else. A and why wouldn't he say there was fraud? It's not because Bill Barr was a good guy who cared about the American people. If that was the case, he would have come forward and told us the truth and pulled the kind of strings that an attorney general can pull to prevent some of the things that happened after the election. Bill Barr stopped short, resigned, and left the Justice Department because he was smart enough to know when he was being solicited to join a criminal conspiracy. He knew that there wasn't fraud. He saw a conspiracy underway. And he got the hell out of there, right? Nobody resigns a couple days ahead of Christmas at the end of an administration because they want to spend more time with their family. But that was Bill Barr's story. So he's on a book tour. He's in it for Barr. He's always been in it for Barr. I have no use for him. Joyce, I have to add to what you said. This isn't the first attorney general who has lied. Um, let's look at John Mitchell, who went to jail for perjury and obstruction of justice. Um, Kleindienst, who took over after him, also was indicted. So there is a history of 
at least Republican attorneys general misusing their office. And Mitchell committed in the office by approving the Watergate break-in after a presentation in his office as attorney general. I mean, it just you've seen that office, that beautiful, wooden, glorious office. And just imagine him not saying, get out of here, that's all illegal, go away. Just, he said, reduce the budget, it's too expensive. Well, we had some news in the abortion wars this week. First, a state legislator in Missouri has proposed an abortion law that goes beyond even the stringent new laws we've seen in places like Mississippi and Texas. This Missouri law would make it a crime for pregnant people to go out of state to get an abortion. And then the Texas Supreme Court ruled in the Texas abortion case that the state licensing authorities do not have authority to enforce the new heartbeat abortion law there. So let's talk about those. Jill, first, can you tell us a little bit about the current and proposed laws in Missouri? Yes. The current law is actually being held in abeyance by um, court order. It would impose an eight-week ban on abortions so that no one could get an abortion after eight weeks of pregnancy measured from the first day of their last period before the pregnancy. And there is no exception except for the life of the mother. So rape and incest, no exception. It's a very strict law, but it would be made even stricter by this attempt to create extraterritorial jurisdiction for the state of Missouri by imposing SB8, the Texas law, vigilante law, uh, mechanism to enforce anyone leaving the state to get a, an abortion. So right now, women who cannot get abortions in Missouri, where, by the way, there is only one abortion clinic, and that's in St. Louis. So that's virtually out of reach of most women in Missouri. It is the only remaining one. It's a Planned Parenthood clinic. But they use this vigilante law to say that any private citizen can sue anyone who helps a Missouri resident to get a, an abortion. And that means not just someone who drives them across state lines or who funds it, but anybody who answers the phone at the clinic out of state would be liable under this law. So it's a really serious and stringent law. And one can only imagine how this can be used for good or for ill uh, with other things. I mean, I live in a state that's very strict on guns. Maybe we could imply that Indiana, which is very lax, has to live by the rules of Illinois. And I don't care what you believe about smaller government. Nobody thinks that Indiana should be able to govern my conduct, and I don't think anyone in Indiana thinks that they should be governed by Illinois law. Yeah, and so interesting, isn't it? Those who advocate for small government are often the ones who are also pushing these restrictive laws um, prohibiting or limiting abortion rights. Um, well, Joyce, let me ask you, um, I mean, is a law like this even constitutional? Can um, a state ban its residents or you know, make, make civil liability for lawsuits? Uh, for its residents who leave the state for the purpose of getting an abortion? Well, you know, let me just be clear about my street cred here on this issue, because I don't think the Texas abortion vigilante enforcement law is constitutional, but the Supreme Court doesn't agree with me. So I, I think our listeners have to take everything that I say with a grain of salt in light of the current composition of the United States Supreme Court. But you know, let, me, let me just ask you, though, this, Joyce. We don't know that yet, right? I mean, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court said that this challenge can't proceed. I don't know that they would agree that the Texas law is constitutional. Is this Michigan sunshine? Because we're looking at the Supreme Court and seeing two different courts. I appreciate <laughs> your optimism, and I sure hope that you prove to be right. Um, but, you know, in, in my judgment, if the Texas law is bad— and even if the Texas law isn't bad, 
this proposed bill, and it's just a proposed bill, it may not pass, um, it's clearly unconstitutional. I don't think the court would affirm it even if they seem to have this separate jurisprudence about abortion, you know, that's they have different rules that they apply in the context of abortion than they really do in any other sorts of legal questions. If the goal of a state in passing a law is restricting access to abortion, then it seems almost inherent with this new court that the state is going to win. I think this extraterritoriality provision might go too far, even for this um, court. You know, the proposed law... As Jill points out, and I think her analysis is just correct, it effectively allows states to enact laws that have force beyond their own borders. And that's not how our form of government works. States get to legislate inside of their own borders. For instance, states can't regulate um, stuff that goes on outside of their borders with a parallel being marijuana law. Marijuana laws can also vary from state to state, just like abortion permissive laws. Missouri lawmakers can outlaw marijuana and punish anyone who uses that drug within Missouri's borders, but they don't have any jurisdiction over a Missouri resident who uses marijuana or in this case obtains an abortion in a state where that's legal. They can't say, if you're a Missouri resident, you can't do something that Oklahoma law Uh, says is okay to do in Oklahoma. They simply lack that jurisdiction. And I think even this court, as difficult, as tortured as its jurisprudence on abortion has been so far, um, I lack Barb's optimism. I think even for them, this might be a bridge too far. Well, Kim, let me ask you, you're an avid Supreme Court observer. Do you think that the current makeup of the court would uphold a law that criminalizes interstate travel to obtain an abortion? I will preface this by saying I no longer have any idea what the Supreme Court (laughs) (laughs) might do. Um, So there's that. But yeah, I I ultimately think that it can. Look, this is a very, very murky space when it comes to the rule of law, right? It would depend on things like, is there a constitutional right to travel, what we were talking about Mm -hmm. earlier? Um, you're you should be you're free to leave your state. You are free to travel about and do things that are legal in the state where you are. That is a basic tenet of the pri- privileges and immunities clause of the Constitution. But there are some Supreme Court opinions that sit that in the last uh, generation or so have really limited the application of that. And we know that um, the conservative end of the court is a lot less um, open to an interpretation of the Constitution that is based on anything but the actual text that exists therein. And this is one of those areas where even though for over 100 years it was taken as a foregone conclusion that the Privileges and Immunities Clause Um, the the 14th Amendment, all the things that protect liberty, liberty meaning the freedom to move about, um, that, of course, that means that you have a freedom to travel and do whatever is legal. That's why, uh, for example, cases that involve someone crossing state lines to use marijuana, a state cannot prohibit you from crossing state lines to use marijuana in a state where marijuana use is legal. This seems cut and dried, but given that gradual chipping away of that liberty right, uh, the same way that we've seen the attack on the privacy right that is foundational to Roe, I don't know. I don't know what the Supreme Court may do. They may come down with a limited ruling saying, no, there's nothing in the Privileges and Immunities Clause or nothing in the 14th Amendment or nothing anywhere that provides a right to travel for the purposes of obtaining an abortion. And then if we go even further, you know, what if states start passing personhood bills, which then creates mm-hmm. this idea that the unborn fetus somehow has rights that would make it even easier for the Supreme Court to slap that down. So I, I don't know. I don't know what they'll do. Let me just say this bill does include that personhood thing because it also eliminates a choice for having an abortion based on a particular medical condition. If you are carrying a Down syndrome fetus, it prohibits you from having an abortion and makes that fetus have rights. But also, Kim, I just, listening to you, and maybe this is going a step too far, made it sound like, okay, so Ukraine was invaded by Russia. 
if Russia had, instead of using military force, had said, we're just going to apply our laws to Ukraine, and anybody who lives in Ukraine who does what we don't like, you're going to be responsible. Isn't that the same thing that this is doing? Mm -hmm. I mean, they've now imposed in Russia, you can't speak the truth and call this a war or an invasion. You have to call it whatever they're calling it. Well, you know, people in Ukraine can still say that, but, oh, maybe Russia could just change the the geographic location of its rules and say, nope, Ukraine, you're governed by our laws. It's the same thing. It's ridiculous. Yeah, and you know, I am willing to accept that the people who advocate for these laws are not necessarily people who simply want to control women, some maybe, but that have a genuine religious belief in protecting the rights of the unborn and that lo- that life is, you know, precious and w- w- whatever is the belief. But isn't this the same thing the Christian version of Sharia law? Like, we all have our own rights to make these decisions ourselves. And I know Jill and Joyce, we've talked about this before, on the Jewish faith, life begins at birth, right, and not before. And so if you have this genuine religious belief that uh, abortion is wrong and a sin and is killing, whatever, fine, don't get one. But the idea that you can force others to abide by your religious beliefs is a violation of religious liberty. Uh, well, let, let me come back to a practical question. Jill, you lived through times when abortions were illegal. What do you see as the consequences of a law like this that would criminalize abortion, even for a person who simply goes into a state where it's legal? I guess it would be uh, sub- sub- subjects them to civil lawsuit. I mean, does this, uh, what incentives or disincentives does this provide? Well, it does provide incentives um, against going to another state, and it provides a disincentive to people in other states to provide you, if you're a Missouri resident, with an abortion. So it's depriving the women and um, it's depriving people who would want an abortion, who are resident in Missouri, from ever getting one anywhere in the United States or or possibly even in the world. Um, It prevents the travel that has always been available to women of means, uh, which is one of the only this equalizes it. It means that even if you have means to travel, you can't do it. Um, as a result of the abortion laws and the fact that there's only one clinic in Missouri, 800% increase in the business at abortion clinics in the surrounding states, in clinics that are near the border. Uh, I, I guess I'm sorry, the 800% increase is in Texas after the Texas law uh, went into effect. And that's what, you know, women did who wanted services. They went outside the state. And this takes that away. So I, I don't know, does that result in back alley abortions, which was a thing when I was younger? It meant that women died or were severely injured in the performance of the abortion because it wasn't done under sterile conditions. It wasn't done by medically trained professionals. I certainly don't want to see us going back to that. Um, Clearly, that was illegal then. It would be illegal now, but there'd be no legal alternative because people won't perform abortions if they think that they may be uh, liable in a civil court. I noticed that uh, you pronounced the Show me state the same way Joyce does. Kim, how do you pronounce the show me state? Okay, so this is very interesting because I am a, a, a resident of that state by marriage. Ah. Um, my husband oh. says Missouri. He is from, he is a St. Louis native. Um, my father-in-law says Missouri. Interesting. So I have not gotten to the bottom of it yet. I do know in the western part of the state, it's more likely that people say Missouri and then the eastern side, Missouri. But I'm still investigating this Uh issue. I'm going to weigh in here. My mama was born in St. Louis, and she says Missouri. Ooh. Joyce, you're from L.A. could be generational, too. Your mama, you know, it's just not flying with me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, whether you say Missouri, Missouri, or misery, uh, there is uh, certainly uh, war against um, those in need of abortion services.
Well, not to throw a monkey wrench into anyone's day, but unfortunately, we're done with our topics for today's show, but we still have time for listener questions. You know, every week we look at all of the questions that you send us and decide which ones we'll answer in the show, but we love seeing all of them. They make us think. They let us know how engaged you are and what topics matter to you. So we always appreciate the questions. If you have a question for us to answer next week or any other week, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using the hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, Keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week. We'll answer as many of your questions as we can there. Our first question this week comes from someone who lives just across the state line from me, from Nan in Starkville, Mississippi. Roll Tide, Nan. Um, She asks, though, a really good question. She asks, since Dr. Dobbs is resigning from his post in Mississippi, will the anti-abortion case at the Supreme Court change names or anything? Will his resignation have any effect at all? Kim, you're our resident Supreme Court expert. (laughs) How about it? Yeah, it will not have any substantive effect at all um, if you're worried about that. In cases like this, the party who holds the interest will be the named plaintiff. And we see very frequently when there are changes in administration or or someone leaves a post and someone replaces them, then the name of the case changes. Often names of cases at the Supreme Court, uh, it, the name of the case is different when it is decided than when it started. So the, uh, the person who replaces Mr. Dobbs will be put in in place as the, as the person in interest in that case, and the case name will change, and nothing else about that will change. Now, of course, sometimes when there is a change of administration and the Justice Department is arguing on one side or another, they may change their argument or something, but I don't think that's happening in this case. Nothing will change but the name of the case. Our next question comes from P.D. Abralski, 13. Um, and Jill, this is a great question for you. They ask, Is a signed engagement letter necessary to be signed in order to claim attorney-client privilege? If not, what evidence can help you prove an attorney-client privilege? What about it? So you don't need a signed letter, although it is very strong and good evidence, and most lawyers would want to have that. It's the normal way to go. But, you know, you always see in movies... Somebody hands you a dollar bill and says, I want to have attorney-client privilege, so I'm hiring you as my lawyer. That happens in movies. Nobody's ever handed me a dollar bill or even a bigger bill. Um, I've always used a retainer letter when I was in private practice. So the answer is, no, you don't need it. And there are other indicia that might be if you filed a pleading on behalf of a person. That would be a clear sign that you were their legal representative. But... Um, the case that I'm sure is the reason for this question is whether uh, Eastman is the lawyer for Donald Trump is in dispute, uh, and we don't know what the evidence is that he was his lawyer. So, Barb, this last question is is perfect for you. It comes from Sheila. It's off of Twitter, where she is at Love Hearts to you. And Sheila asks, if one man commits many crimes— Do prosecutors gather all evidence and prepare one indictment, or is each crime treated on an individual basis resulting in many indictments, civil or criminal? Can you answer that one? Yeah, this is a great question, and actually a topic we spend a bit of time on in my criminal procedure class. So um, this is uh, the rule of joinder and severance. So in the federal system, there's a rule, rule eight, and states will have their equivalent. And it says essentially that a prosecutor may charge uh, two or more different crimes, which we call counts, in the same indictment if the offenses are of the same or similar character, based on the same act or transaction, or connected with or constitute parts of a common plan or scheme. And so the the kind of dual balancing values that we have here is, number one, efficiency. It's more efficient to have one indictment with multiple counts in it than to have uh, you know several different cases proceeding. But at the same time, we also want to make sure that a defendant is not prejudiced by it, by including too many different things. And so the jury will hold against that person a different crime uh, when they're deciding their fate on on this crime. So, you know, for example, if somebody were involved in an insurance fraud scheme, you might be, and, and they, they burned down a building, they burned down their restaurant, and then they filed uh, an insurance claim on the restaurant. You would be able to charge both the fraud, the, the mailing of 
uh, the documents uh, in support of the fraud claim, as well as the arson itself, two very different types of crimes, but because they're part of a common scheme or plan, you could charge those in the same indictment. That's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Jill Wine-Banks, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and me, Joyce Vance. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlawatpoliticon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our brand new woman's tea. And please support this week's sponsors, AARP Services, Real Paper, Jenny Kane, Helix, and HelloFresh. You can find their links and their discounts for Sisters in Law listeners in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please give us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sisters in Law. So I had requested a non-smoking seat, and... uh, And someone was smoking, like, right in front of me or right behind me, whatever it was. And so I beckoned the flight attendant who was – it was Japanese airline. And I I tried to, you know, through uh, all kinds of hieroglyphics, tried to say, I thought I requested a no-smoking seat. And and that person's smoking. And she said, ah, your seat? Non-smoking. This seat? Smoking. (laughs) So she brought me a mask. She brought me a mask. And I remember thinking, like, I'm the one who has to wear the mask. So I used to, when I worked in Pakistan, it's a very long flight. I'm sorry, wait, what's this now? You worked in Pakistan? (laughs) I I worked in Pakistan, and it's a long flight to get there. in the many careers of Jill Wynbanks. And the airlines in Pakistan, no smoking is one side of the plane, and smoking (laughs) is the other side. So So stupid. Even, you know, you're sitting on an aisle seat, and the person on the aisle seat next to you is smoking. Why were you working in Pakistan, though? What were you doing in Pakistan? Uh, For Motorola. Um, It was my first assignment with Motorola, and it was really, it was, it was fabulous. I, when I first got the assignment, I went and got a book about Pakistan, and this is back in the 90s, so nobody had ever heard of Pakistan, and there's a chapter on women in, in the book, and it says, women cannot, shall not, must not, will not. And so I go to my boss and said, you know, maybe this shouldn't be my first assignment. And he said, no, 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 we really need you. And it turned out it was a fabulous experience. I mean, I really, really loved it.